Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Download our pod and learn the way. Not all new sources light the way. U.S. can get brighter to not lean so brighter. We can find our way as we face United Fray. And the show starts right damn now. Those who have stakes will fight to play. Those who have stakes will fight to play. Subscribe to our show and learn the way. Subscribe to the show and learn the way. Facts with some fun folks. Show tunes and crass jokes. Hear us sing and play. And fill your mind and soul today. Talking musical history. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Talking Musical History Podcast, TMH. My name is Chris Anderson. And I'm Kevin Werner. And uh, today we're going to be talking about the musical Newsies. Came out in 1992, Great Time. Yeah, it was in more of the beginning of the Disney Renaissance era. This is part of our series talking about child labor and the abuse of children and in the labor market. Basically, our coverage around how the United States handles children. We'll talk about the origins of newsies. Distributions of newspapers for the afternoon editions relied on newsboys and girls and women to sell in the streets that mostly came from poor immigrants. Definitely. With the Spanish-American War, the story was juicy and the papers sold, but then the war ended and many papers had to increase the prices for a time, but then brought them back down, all except for two. Those were owned by William Randolph Hearst of the New York Journal and Joseph Pulitzer of New York World, July 18th, 1899. The strike started with the journal delivery man who sorted the Newsies bundles. They discovered this and then they went and pushed over his cart. Yeah, and I assume that this was a consistent thing that happened only because like you, you think you're dealing with like mostly kids yeah. and, and uh, immigrants. And so I assume that, you know, it was like, you know, eh, 90, eh, 80. Close and they enough, would, they would yeah. make more money, which is really funny because they're already making more money by charging them more. So like, why do both? So on July 24th, 1899, there was a rally held at Irving Hall with local businessmen and strikers as well as flyers that were set up to unite for the cause. Following the rally, they settled down the violence because there was some violence that happened in the Newsy strike. Yes, I I mean, violence was pretty prevalent in the whole uh, process. They did tame that violence and try to go more down a nonviolent way. But uh, even even sometimes women were subject to violence. Uh, uh, The the newswomen uh, that were also participating in selling papers. It was suggested that Kid Blink and David Simmons... And these were real people who were actually involved. Kid yes. Blink. Louis Kid Blink Belletti. And for those of you that are following along in the Newsies, 
Kid Blink was in the Newsies, yes. but he was demoted. Yeah, he did not get to be the head of his own cause. And uh, David Simmons was also nowhere to be around. I don't know why they didn't, uh, like, use There was Mick a Jack. Davey character. And so and the, Dave yeah. and David, I think that... Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Um, <laughs> like, unless you give them the same last name, it's not 100% clear. Yeah, but it was suggested that David and Kid Blink were paid off by Pulitzer and Hearst. So they were actually exiled from the Newsies. Yeah. Louis Kid Blink Belletti was 18 at the time of the strike. He was also going by the names of Red Blink, Blind Diamond, because he did have a patch over one eye, and Muggsy McGee. David Simmons was 21 and had been selling papers since he was eight. Also, he was an amateur prize fighter. Yeah, a funny uh, fact around that, at some point in time in U.S. history, I guess, there were boxing training camps for Newsies. So, like, basically Newsies could, you know, go into the art of boxing, and there was actually a lot of Newsies that became boxers. Other colorful real-life characters in the strike were leaders like Ed Racetrack Higgins of Brooklyn, Morris Crutchy Cohen, Boots, Mush Myers, and Spot Collins. I was actually really disappointed that they didn't include uh, Annie Kelly. Yeah, um, yeah like uh, she, I think her story actually would have fit in very nicely with the whole 100%. thing. I feel like Annie Kelly should have been more of a staple instead of Meta Larkin. It would have still been the same kind of character, but like it would have been a little bit more tied in with it because like she was also a newswoman. They considered her to be sort of a patron saint of what was going on. And she actually spoke at the rally. Yeah, she spoke at the and rally. And she said, all I can say, boys, is stick together and we'll win. That's all I've got to say to you. Wasn't much, but at least it was a support. Instead of uh, sort of going against the picket lines and uh, doing what some of the other newswomen would do, which is hide the newspapers under the skirts. So they would hide the, the World or Journal under their skirts. Um, and we know this because early in the strike, Kid Blink was interviewed about the women who didn't join the strike. And after he discussed the problem, he said, anyway, we got Annie with us. You can bet that there ain't no Worlds or Journals under her skirt. <laughs> so like that's that's actually really incredible like uh, uh i guess the 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 scab newswomen would hide the journals under their skirt so you know if someone would come up they would probably like oh yeah you want this i got it right here yeah. and but they wouldn't get necessarily attacked by the newsboys right. or like harassed by them the newsies were luring customers away from the newsstands that sold the world or journal but were not pulling customers away from Annie because she was on their side. In fact, a lot of the customers who used to go to other newsstands started going to Annie during the strike because she had chosen to join the boycott. She told an interviewer that even though she wasn't selling the two most popular papers in New York at the time, the extra traffic meant that she was averaging 60 cents more in profits than before the strike. And the average wage was about 35 cents a day. That's terrible. Now, uh, I'd like to put that in context for everyone else. So, like, if you were, like, a blacksmith in that time, you'd be making about 27 cents an hour. If you were a carpenter at that time, you'd probably be making about 32 cents an hour. Uh, a, a machinist at that time made about 24 cents an hour. And a, a laborers, just regular laborers, about 15 cents an hour at the time. And uh, get this, like, even a farmer day laborer like outside of like a, a harvest season was making 92 cents a day. Those are really low wages. But like the other thing is like compared to like what these news 
people were making, mm-hmm. these newsies were making, yeah. like it, it, it's it's really interesting because you know um, they were definitely helping uh, Hearst and Pulitzer uh, pull in millions, breaking your back for someone else's sake. Uh, the actual strike ended with a compromise. The World and Journal agreed to buy back all the unsold copies of the newspaper. I mean, that's fair, but it seems like the obvious compromise. You know what I mean? Because then you get to actually figure out your, like, interest distribution and figure out how you want to build into that, right? Like, if you have these contract workers consistently, like, absorbing your risk, you're not really seeing how to expand your business best. You just sort of have a kind of guess on how many readers you actually have. And that way you can actually make money and do a good job with your workers. Yeah, it doesn't always have to be a scam. Although this was not the first, that being in 1884, later strikes in Butte, Montana of 1914 and in Louisville, Kentucky in the 1920s credit the 1899 strike for inspiring those. Eventually, this did lead to a child welfare practice update and improving worker conditions. Kid Blink was once quoted saying, This is a time which tries the heart of men. This is a time when we've got to stick together like glue. We know what we want, and we'll get it even if we're blind. So a little joke on his yeah. eye patch. Which is funny because people have a debate over whether he was blind or not, but he wasn't really blind. He had like an eye patch, so he had at least one eye, right? We can give him the benefit of the doubt. Uh, Kid Blink was also quoted saying, I'm trying to figure how 10 cents on 100 papers can mean more to a millionaire than it does to newsboys. I can't see it. So like the idea of like, you know, uh, what is this millionaire doing with like this extra 10 cents that he needs when it could basically like be an extra meal, uh, um, a place to stay for us. I'm very sad that David Simmons is kind of missing from the story. Like, uh, we did mention uh, Davey, but he's Davey Jacobs and not David Simmons. Um, So not really the same person. David was the president of the Newsboy Union at the beginning of the strike and the treasurer in the second half after he was accused of betraying the strike, like we had mentioned before. Let's talk about the core of the conflict with the Newsies, William Randolph Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer. Joseph Pulitzer was born in April 10th, 1847, and was a Hungarian-born American newspaper publisher of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and the New York World. He became a leading national figure in the Democratic Party and was elected congressman from New York. He helped keep the Statue of Liberty in New York during his term in office. When Pulitzer purchased the world, New York City was overwhelmingly Democratic and did not have a major Democratic newspaper. In the first issue under his ownership, Pulitzer announced the paper would be dedicated to the cause of the people rather than the purse potentates, which is really weird to me because he was, you know, squeezing his newsies. And in the 1890s, with fierce competition, like we mentioned, between Hearst and uh, sort of their stoking of the Spanish-American uh, War, through their development of techniques 
like Yellow Journalism, which won over readers with sensational sex, crime, and graphic horrors, the wide appeal reached a million copies a day and opened the way to mass circulation newspapers that depended on advertising revenue rather than cover price or political party subsidies, and appealed to readers with multiple forms of news, gossip, entertainment, and advertising. So pretty much Fox News. Yellow journalism is an American term for journalism that presents little or no legitimate well-researched news while instead using eye-catching headlines for increased sales. Techniques may include exaggerations of news events, scandal-mongering, or sensationalism. A pejorative to decry any journalism that treats news in an unprofessional or unethical fashion. So, Fox News. In 1892, Pulitzer offered Columbia University President Seth Law money to set up the world's first school of journalism. The university initially turned down the money, in, but in 1902, Columbia's new president, Nicholas Murray Butler, was more receptive to the plan for a school and journalism prizes. It would not be until Pulitzer's death in 1911 that the dream would be fulfilled. Pulitzer left the university $2 million, and in 1912, the school founded the Columbian University Graduate School of Journalism. Uh, and later on in 1917, the Pulitzer Prize was created. Pulitzer did all of these things to sort of help journalism, but he didn't care for the people that he had direct connection to. So we talked a lot about Hearst in um, Reefer Madness back yeah. in the day, definitely. But uh, um, and, and also we talked about with Annie as well, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We talked to, about him a little bit in Annie as well, definitely. Uh, and he keeps coming up because he owned a lot of stuff and he, you know, kind of set a course uh, for a lot of things that have happened in America today, to be completely honest including destroying Orson Welles' career, basically, when he made Citizen Kane. April 29th of 1863, that's when Hearst was born, and he also engaged in yellow journalism. It was between Hearst and Pulitzer doing the basically yellow journalism war, like uh, doing sensational over sensational, and that doesn't work. That doesn't work. So at the end of Pulitzer's career, he switched to being in the Republican Party. In the movie, Pulitzer says, you know what I was doing when I was your age? I was in a war. Well, he was. At 17, he was recruited to fight in the Civil War in Lincoln Cavalry in 1864. Although he spoke German, Hungarian, and French, it wasn't until after the war that he was even to able grasp English. Yeah, definitely. And uh, um, I think sort of... When the Jack Kelly character says to him, well, which side? I think he's trying to make a sort of a confederacy sort of like a jab at him. In 1895, William Randolph Hertz purchased the rival New York Journal, which at one time had been owned by Pulitzer's brother, Albert. Hearst had been a great admirer of Pulitzer's world. The two embarked on a circulation war. The competition with Hearst, particularly the coverage before and during the Spanish-American War, linked Pulitzer's name with yellow journalism. Hearst created a chain that numbered nearly 30 papers in major American cities at its peak. He later expanded to magazines, creating the largest newspaper and magazine business in the world. Hearst controlled the editorial positions and coverage of political news in all of his papers and magazines, and thereby often published his personal views. He sensationalized Spanish atrocities in Cuba while calling for war in 1898 against Spain. Historians, however, reject the subsequent claims to have started the war with Spain, 
as overly extravagant, but there's definitely a connection to his sort of hype and what happened down there. He was twice elected as a Democrat in the U.S. House of Representatives for New York and St. Louis. And during his political career, he espoused views generally associated with the left wing of the progressive movement, claiming to speak on the behalf of the working class, which, once again, what's going on with the strike then if we speak on behalf of the working class? And after 1918 and the end of World War I, Hearst gradually began adopting more conservative views and started promoting an isolationist foreign policy to avoid any more entanglement that he regarded as corrupt European affairs. He was a bad manager of his finances and so deeply in debt during the Great Depression that most of his assets had to be liquidated in late 1930s. Hearst managed to keep his newspapers and magazines, however. His life story was the main inspiration for Charles Foster's Kane, the lead character in Orson Welles' film, Citizen Kane, in 1941. Enraged at the idea of Citizen Kane, being a thinly disguised and very unflattering portrait of him, Pulitzer used his massive influences and resources to prevent the film from being released, all without even having seen it. Wells and the studio RKO Pictures resisted the pressure, but Hearst and his Hollywood friends ultimately succeeded in pressuring the theater chains to limit showings of Citizen Kane. Side note, it wasn't Orson Welles' depiction of Hearst that made him look bad, okay? I feel like Wells could have probably provided a much harsher and more interesting version of the film. Considering yellow journalism, that wasn't in the film. Considering the newsy strike, that wasn't in the film. There's a lot of things they could have put in it that make him look worse than he did. Admire him. He's so sad. He lost his youth. I mean, he could have given it to the Newsies and allowed them to have their youth, but we didn't talk about that in the Citizen Kane film. You may remember that from our Reefer Madness episode that Hearst fanned the flames of non-European descendants in his publications to the extent that he staunchly supported the Japanese-American internment during World War II and used his media power to demonize Japanese Americans and to drum up support for the internment of Japanese Americans. Much like Charles Foster Kane, Hearst was the worst, but I feel like the movie still made him look better. Uh, George Takai is probably going like, oh my. There was a trolley strike starting in 1895 due to the trolleys being turned electric and workers wanting to be paid more for working related to the mechanics and waiting for transportation, along with a 10-hour workday, including lunch breaks. And mind you, 10 hours was a reduction from the 12-hour workday of, like, you just pass out and start over again. Theodore Roosevelt was the 33rd governor of New York, January 1899 to the end of 1900. After assistant secretary of the Navy, following governorship, he was the 25th VP under William McKinley up until his assassination, making him the 26th president. While he was a Republican, his cousin FDR, which we did talk about in Annie, was a Democrat. They share a fourth great-grandpa, Nicholas Roosevelt. The first newspaper boy is believed to be Benjamin Franklin, who reluctantly signed up to be his brother James's apprentice for nine long years at the New England Current, where he delivered newspapers and did other tasks. Of course, America's first newspaper boy was not Benjamin Franklin, but instead, he was a slave. 
Vincent DiGirolamo, the author of Crying the News, The History of America's Newsies, discovered the founding father misconception about the true first paperboy who delivered the news 15 years before Benjamin Franklin. So Paperboy Prime, we'll call him, delivered for the Boston News Letter, which first published on April 24th, 1704. Interesting. Very cool. And it was regarded as the first continuously published newspaper in the colony of Massachusetts. This pro-monarchy publication stayed in circulation for about 70 years and met its end right before the source material was born for 1776 in Hamilton. And with the British withdrawal, the newsletter ceased to exist. Uh, newsies are the original gig economy worker, if you think about it. Oh, yeah, definitely. Right? It's like they're, they're the Uber guys, and that's like, I mean, I understand why Uber would want to, like, you know, push back, too. Yeah, individual contractors that have their life dictated by a larger corporation that has been around for some time. There's definitely a lot to be learned from the struggle of the Newsies. Everything that happens in the Newsies is kind of pivoting around the Spanish-American War. And the Spanish-American War occurred April 21st through August 13th, 1898. And it is often referred as the first media war. How is that? Well, you know, we mentioned we were talking about uh, Hearst and Pulitzer and like the idea of them sort of manufacturing a war. And there's definitely debate on whether they did or didn't. But I will say this. I mean, we know the power of like Fox News to like uh, sway a public. We know the power of propaganda and to not believe that Hearst and Pulitzer had some sort of sway since there wasn't really any war and then all of a sudden there was and then it kind of disappeared. It wasn't like anyone really had any interest in carrying on because, like, you know, America's good at carrying on wars. Let's be honest. And, like, honestly, I could not tell you off the top of my head what the Spanish-American War was even about. All right, well, let's go a little bit into that. All right, so... Um, It was an armed conflict between Spain and the United States. So hostilities began in an aftermath of the internal explosion of the USS Maine in Havana Harbor in Cuba, leading to U.S. intervention by the Cuban War of Independence. The war led to the U.S. emerging predominant in the Caribbean region and resulted in U.S. acquisition of Spain's Pacific possessions. In the late 1890s, America public opinion swayed in support of the rebellion due to reports of concentration camps. Now, yellow journalism, uh, which we talked about between Pulitzer and uh, Hearst, exaggerated the atrocities to further increase public fervor and, of course, to sell more newspapers and magazines. So after the United States Navy armor cruiser Maine mysteriously exploded and sank in Havana Harbor on February 15th, 1898, political pressure from the Democratic Party, uh, which, you know, Pollster and Hearst were pulling the strings on. It's really interesting. They were both Democrats and then they became Republicans after they sort of caused all this Public pressures from the Democratic Party pushed McKinley into a war that he had wished to avoid. Pushed the McKinley in the war. Uh, Hearst and Pulitzer decided that the Spanish were to blame, and they publicized this theory as fact in their papers. Even prior to the explosion, both had published sensationalist accounts of atrocities committed by the Spanish in Cuba. Following the explosion, the tone escalated with headlines, Remember the Maine to, and To Hell with Spain! quickly appearing. 
Their press exaggerated what was happening and how the Spanish were treating the Cuban prisoners. The stories were based on factual accounts, obviously, but they definitely exaggerated it. The Spanish are invading us. The invaders obtained the surrender of Santiago de Cuba and Manila, despite the good performance of some Spanish infantry troops and fierce fightings for positions such as San Juan Hill. The result was the 1898 Treaty of Paris, negotiated on terms favorable to the U.S., of course. Today, historians point to the Spanish-American War as the first press-driven war. Although it may be exaggerated to the claim that Hearst and Pulitzer started the war, maybe, it is fair to say that the press fueled the public passion for war. Without sensational headlines and stories about Cuban affairs, the mood for Cuban intervention may not have been an easy sell. As the dawn of the 20th century, the United States emerged as the world power, and the U.S. press proved its influence. So I guess Hertz and Pulitzer were like the Zuckerbergs of their time. So Hertz and Pulitzer raised the cost of bundles from 50 cents to 60 cents to ask the Newsies to sacrifice for a war that they had a hand in promoting. And then when the war ended in the most responsible way, right, eight months later, they wanted to continue to squeeze the contract workers. They wanted to continue to squeeze those little boys, those Newsies. So basically, if you don't know the story of the Newsies, um, Jack Kelly, who's the star of the show, Mm -hmm. right? And um, Who's a fictional... Yeah, Jack Kelly is not a real historical Newsie. I don't know why they didn't choose uh, Kid Blink or... Crutchy, Mushmeyers. Isn't that weird? Like, Crutchy was the real one. An actual, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but you have, like, David Simmons, you have Annie Kelly, um, you have Crutchy. Those were real. Uh, Boots, Mush, Ed Racetrack Higgins. Before the show actually starts. The Spanish War happens and ends. Because of the war, allegedly because of the war, they had to save money and charge 60 cents a paper. And the papers were doing well anyway, so the newsies were still making money. In the the story written by Alan Menken, um, Jack Kelly... And his crew gets really frustrated when they raise the price of newspapers from 50 cents to 60 cents per hundred, basically making it harder for them to eat. They get all huffy about it and start like turning cards and, and... and like trying to shut things down. But at the same time, Jack Kelly is being chased by the state government because they want to basically put him back into a kid's home again. They don't really, they're not going to care for them anyway. Do they, is it because of money? Is that why they do it? I, it doesn't seem like they're trying to, like, if you're hunting someone down, like, is that care? It seemed like maybe similar to the Jean Valjean loaf of bread steal and have Javert hunt you down forever. Yeah, you that's weird too, right? Me, like, like I'm he would waste his you life. It's all about power. It obviously is, right? Stop the city from getting newspapers and get uh, Hearst and Pulitzer to. What, they didn't even talk about how it was resolved, did they? Did they Did they say how no. it was resolved? No. It is supposed to be seen as this anthem of the broken that stand up against the man, and that's supposed to be the lesson of the entire story. I mean, stories are supposed to have a resolution. And it says we beat him, and that's it. What they beat him with, how they won the strike, they do not say. It's supposed to be David and Goliath, and we beat Goliath. Look at us. This would be like David and Goliath if, like, David goes back to this town and says he beat Goliath, but then they all look outside, and Goliath is still right there. Like, what? Yeah. You, you beat him? I was like, yeah. I went out there, just like in the story. I had my rock, just like in the story. I had my slingshot, just in, like in the story. Yeah, I beat him. 
Right. Exactly. <laughs> Real life, they the only victory they got is like they got their buyback. They just gave them the title of winning without defining the terms right. of that win. That's awesome. Good for them. Well, it's Disney. But up up but up up. Prior to Alan Menken and Jack Feldman creating newsies as we know it and we're talking about it today, yeah. there was Back in 1942 with issue number seven. Oh, yeah. 64 of Star Spangled Comics <laughs> as the Newsboy Legion by DC Comics. In the first story, Jim Harper is a renegade cop and the Guardian taking in the Newsboy Legion with big words, Gabby, Scrapper, and Tommy Tompkins. <laughs> Tommy Tompkins. I'm just not, I'm so confused as to why this was created. Maybe it was like, well, there's paper boys and right. paper boys like to read. Right. So maybe we'll make something about them and they'll buy the comics. Buy the comics, yeah. I don't know. So Star Spangled Comics was a comic anthology published by DC, which ran for 130 issues. So it was something like a war effort kind of a thing? Yeah, yeah. Okay. It, they did the Newsboys Legion and the Robin Archives. After this message, we'll be right back. All right, let's play a game where you shout out your best sales call like a newsie would based off the idea I share. You ready to do this, Kevin? Yeah. So let's say you were trying to sell an additional release. You'd say... Extra, extra, read all about it. And if you were trying to sell it to a Chicago cop, you'd say... Will they test you? Read all about it. And if you had a story about a billionaire personal data miner who connects many to fake news, you'd say... Now they're meta, think all about it. And if you had a story about how workers are exploited by Cancun jet-set elites, you'd say... Move it along, pal. Nothing to see here. Current strikes uh, that we can see, you know, just like the newsies, there's uh, people upset about their workplace in a lot of varying degrees, mind you. But um, so the cops are on strike, like the cops of Chicago. Yeah. Um, they're on strike and they're being asked to either get tested or have a shot. So I, I don't yeah, understand this. That's really being brave and serving and protecting. Yes. Right. I know. Exactly. If you can't serve and protect, <clears throat> why keep your job? <clears throat> I can serve and pr protect my community by shooting unarmed black kids, but how dare you ask me for a vaccine? Um, Kellogg is also on strike. The union at the Battle Creek-based company has been in an impasse at the bargaining table for more than a year. Uh, the dispute involves an assortment of pay and benefit issues, such as the loss of premium health care, holiday and vacation pay, and reduced retirement benefits. Workers at Frito-Lay in Nabisco are also more than 10,000 John Deere employees went on strike. 24,000 healthcare workers at Kaiser Permanente went on strike. About 60,000 Hollywood workers almost went on strike, but, you know, uh, things got worked out, and that was pretty cool. To date, over 175 strikes have been documented in 2021. Isn't that crazy? That's insane. That's super insane. It was never about getting information out to people. It's not about the news. It was about making money. It was about controlling America down to the little muscly on paper boy. So following the last Disney live action musical, Popeye. Uh, 
1980. I don't care what anybody says. I bet if that would have went to Broadway, it would have done better than Spider-Man. I'm I'm sure people wouldn't have died. Yeah. When Popeye gets spinach, you better watch out, dude. Before that, it was Pete's Dragon. <laughs> Pete's Dragon, really? In 1977. And I've got one friend by my side. Now I've got two. Me and you. Him and me. It's so easy. Disney jumped back into the live action musical with Kenny Ortega as the choreographer and filmmaker who was also responsible for Hocus Pocus, High School Musical, and choreographed Pretty in Pink, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar, and... Dirty Dancing. Oh, wow. That's a pretty, uh, that's a pretty nice uh, set there. Before that, he was hired as one of the choreographers on the film Xanadu. <laughs> yeah, ABBA's making a comeback. I hear about that. Working with Gene Kelly. Oh, wow. Yeah. Newsies was his directorial debut. Now, now this is a little, a little bittersweet here. So the original premise of the, mu- the music part of it was going to be coming right off of the... Beauty and the Beast with Aladdin scheduled in the future. Right, exactly. Was the award-winning duo Alan Menken and Howard Ashman. That's <laughs> what they were thinking of for Newsies. We'll have this really bang-up team. They're brilliant. They work together so well, you know. And then, unfortunately, as we talked about in another episode with Little Shop of Horrors... Yes. Howard Ashman sadly passed away of AIDS. So from the BMI writing workshop, Alan Menken brought along his friend Jack Feldman, an American composer who's known for hits like Copacabana that he wrote with Barry Manilow and just a a real genius. So it was Jack Feldman and Alan Menken along with J.A.C. Redford an American composer, arranger, orchestrator, and conductor who is best known for concerts and other movies and TV shows, including our next film that we're going to talk about, Oliver and Company. And we'll also be looking at the original, of course, as well. Writers were another award-winning married couple, like as in Frozen, Novi White and Bob Zudiker, and started as a non-musical, but thanks to Katzenberg... (laughs) Thanks to Jeffrey Katzenberg, it was changed to be a musical like the other Disney movies before. Thanks to Katzenberg. There are a lot of appreciative people of it, though. I mean, like, there's tons of people uh, that have, like participated in the whole resurgence of Newsies as a real thing that led to it going to Broadway. It's fansies. uh, They were really excited about bringing on the insurgents of Newsies by doing their own personal productions of Newsies in their high school, thus causing an amazing resurgence. Thanks to Katzenberg. This, however, opened with a box office bomb. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the, that was the first thing, Katzenberg. Including an award for Alan Menken with a Razzie for High Times, Hard Times, the worst song in the movie. Yeah, well, uh, little known fact, first Christian Bale's sister played uh, Meta's assistant. 
Louise Bale originally had a song of her own, but she only ended up apparently briefly grabbing Meta and Margaret after after Ray's track was punched at the riot. Also, another awesome random fact, Kevin, Mila Jovovich auditioned to play Sarah. What the fuck? I guess it turned out that she could sing. No, she, she can sing. We yeah. hear that I on mean, Family uh, Guy. Oh, duh, duh, right. Obvi- and obviously she was a nanny. And she actually did readings with Christian Bale, uh, uh, but their readings together were considered abrasive. Obviously, Elle Keats was cast in the role, uh, despite her lack of singing talent. Critics, Roger Ebert called it warmed over Horatio Elger. Going on to say, although the material does indeed involve young protagonists, no effort is made to show their lives in a way today's kids can identify with. This movie must seem as odd to them as a foreign film. The fact that old man Pulitzer once tried to cheat Newsies out of a tenth of a cent must represent, for many of them, the very definition of Underwhelming. You know what they should have done instead is like gone out of their way to discuss like how much things cost. Mm-hmm. And to kids, it wouldn't matter because once they understand how much the kids were making and how much things cost, they could probably put two and put two, two together. together. Yeah, I don't know. And thus he gave it 1.5 out yeah. of five stars. Leonard Malton called it Howard the Paperboy, stating this ambitious up to a point project is done in by a lackluster score yeah. and a cramped production number that seem cheap despite the movie's hefty production budget, not to mention its bloated running time. If you ground them in like a real space, it helps, which Newsies was definitely like a backlot wonder. We found out about the fanzies in the research. So, so wait, wait, what, what is a fanzie again? The fanzies are the ones that are like really super into newsies and they go to see like, like something like 200 something shows. Or, so Harvey Firestein, the, the great, wonderful talent, phenomenal. We will talk more about him yeah, definitely. in kinky boots and hairspray and other things. So part of the reason also too that it got made into a musical was Harvey Firestein. He was babysitting his nephews, and they had the VHS tape of Newsies. Found, he fell in love with it. Ha, that's funny. Uh, it's, it's, you know, like if that movie wouldn't, wasn't made in the first place, right? From the existing Alan Menken, Jack Feldman piece, he writes the book along with director Jeff Calhoun and choreography by, by Christopher Gatelli. The Paper Mill Playhouse in New Jersey to start Broadway brings you Newsies with Jeremy Jordan. It's pretty exciting. Harvey said this was not about the strike, but about the an adaptation of the movie. I ran into a really awesome person that uh, uh, told me that uh, uh, she had the opportunity to actually like help newsies exist because like disney was going around and like uh offering like scripts to certain high schools oh wow like yeah right and then like hey you tell us how this should be and give us feedback and like they were using that to build the musical wow that's really cool isn't it i remember seeing newsies the movie the first time well when i was a kid it was amazing oh i I mean because it came out i was 12 years old i had loved musicals Every day, as long as I can sing, I love. I mean, I love musicals too. Um, I feel like Newsies is okay. You know, most musicals have like a standard of like 
hit songs, right? And I'm not trying to take anything from Santa Fe. Please don't send us hate mail. We don't we don't despise newsies. But that being said, it just seems like there is opportunity for more awesomeness in the musical. One of the things that I, I latched on to as a kid, at that point, I knew what it meant to be an oppressed person oh, okay. in a general Sorry. sense of the word. No, that's you get to watch these boys. Oppression. The way that it was done to a 12 year old musical theater nerd. Right. Yeah. This was like amazing. Now I, am I looking at it with rosy colored glasses? I think yes, because you know, my cousin and I really connected on musicals and, and we both really loved it. I believe if they had the version of, um, Newsies, uh, the musical that that that's music and script versus what they used. I think the show would have probably been enjoyed more. So what I would love to have like seen especially with seeing younger people do that show is the worlds combined. So you have the songs of the musical, yeah, with the, more of the cast of the movie minus certain people. So this is a quote from director Kenny Ortega from Behind the Scenes Disney Magazine. This was a true historical event. The newsboys in Manhattan at the turn of the century banded together and managed to stop the most powerful men in the country from taking advantage of them. This was the first successful child labor movement in America. Eight, nine, 10, 13-year-olds were living on their own. They were responsible for each other. These minds actually tackled Joseph Pulitzer. Jack Feldman's most favorite song of Newsies was King of New York. He loved hearing the kids tell him what their favorite things are and seeing their faces as these young performers get to have their first big break. Must have been very exciting. On the opposite side of it, Christian Bale quoted, I'm not really into musicals, but I wish them the best. And I'm sure the person playing the character I played exceeded whatever I did. And congratulations to them. This is from an Entertainment Weekly interview on CNN.com as to why he will not be seeing the musical. Yeah, no, Christian Bale is uh, not about to do a musical. He was kind of tricked into being in the musical. I mean, not really tricked. He, he signed up for a live-action show. Yeah. And then it's like, hey, you're in a musical now. And he's mm-hmm. like, what? And he's like, yeah, you're under contract. So here are some, some references. Santa Fe was founded in 1610, but in 1851 became the capital of New Mexico before it was a state, following New Mexico succeeding to the U.S. in 1848. This song, Santa Fe, was most likely an inspiration to a young Jonathan Larson, who used the title and theme of the song in Rent. Yeah, definitely. It stirred a lot of people and sort of excites so many. I ain't getting cool. any younger and before my dying day. You know, I, I might be a little bit hard on the musical, but it, it's, it's a fun show. It's, it's, it's a fun show. And it's about protest. What other musical is about protest? I don't, I don't know. Houston to Harlem. Houston Street in the neighborhood of New York City was changed from the line neighbor to neighbor father to son so instead the lyrics if you're listening to the musical will be housed into harlem look what's begun versus neighbor to neighbor father to son sheepshead races 
were American Thoroughbred Horse Racing in Coney Island Jockey Club at Sheepshead Bay, completed in 1880. And although they don't say the name of the deli, Katz's Deli, my, my favorite deli of all times in New York City, was opened in 1888. So they could have very well been potentially talking about having the pastrami sandwich right there. Personal puss on a wooden nickel. For those of you that scratched your head trying to figure out what that meant. <laughs> they mean your mug. Your face printed on a wooden nickel <laughs> that was given as a novelty mainly back. Yeah. Yeah. Meta Larkin, based on Aida Overton Walker, also billed as Ada Overton Walker and the queen of the catwalk. It was an African-American vaudeville performer Actress, singer, dancer, choreographer, and wife of vaudevillian George Walker. Born in 1880, she would have only been 19 at the time of the strike. Oh, wow. Was she also a model? You know what I mean? And she did her little thing on the catwalk? On the catwalk, yeah. I do my little dance on the catwalk. Crooked politician. First political scandal had to do with Hamilton in regards to his affair with Mariah Reynolds back in 1791. Second was William Blount as a congressional congressman, first to be expelled from the Senate for trying to aid the British taking control of Louisiana and Florida in 1797. Third goes back to Hamilton with his assassin Aaron Burr, who tried to capture out west territory himself and was living in self-imposed exile. All because of Hamilton. Piker, a gambler who makes only small bets. Flashpots. Flash colored by by a puff of smoke for theater productions. Oh yeah, definitely a fun bit of theater technology uh, magic. Theatre magic. James Gordon Bennett Jr., is the publisher of the New York Herald, founded by his father, James Gordon Bennett Sr., who immigrated from Scotland. Nellie Bly, a real-life reporter around the time that Catherine Plummer's character was based on, who actually talked her way to work for Pulitzer and report on conditions in a madhouse after only being given more fluff pieces. This helped change conditions in them and made her famous to be able to travel around the world actually meeting Jules Verne, who was the inspiration. Oh, wow, yeah, yeah, Time Machine, that's great. Yeah, so now to talk about some of the actors involved with the original movie. We'll do a little bit more on the Broadway, but mostly the movie's yeah, mostly talking name. About the movie. Yeah. Christian Bale, the one and only musical, as we say, that he was ever involved with. His father was an activist and his stepmother, Gloria Steinem. Oh, wow, really? Acting was definitely in his blood, his grandpa was a stand-in for John Wayne. That's interesting, too. I am your brother's cousin's sister's uncle. What does that make us? Absolutely nothing. nothing. <laughs> Bill Pullman, first prominent role was in Ruthless People with Danny DeVito and someone we're going to talk about next in Oliver and Company, Bette Midler. Following the next year, Bill Pullman would be in Spaceballs. Yeah. Right? Yeah, he we won like, like several that. awards and was nominated for playing the president in Independence Day. David Moscow, most remembered as the young Josh Baskin from Big. Oh, okay, cool. Most recently was the co-producer development first production of In the Heights with his ex, Carrie Washington. Oh, yeah, that's such a, such a wonderfully produced musical. Robert Duvall, long way after he appeared in To Kill a Mockingbird... 
making his film debut following a stint in the army, he started a stage career. Oh, okay. Politically, he is libertarian or conservative. However, in 2014, in an interview with the Daily Beast, he said that he will probably become an independent, calling today's Republican Party, quote, a mess. Understatement? It's, it's funny that you mentioned Duvall like that. Much like Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst. Uh, media empires, Fox News, OAN, Mark Zuckerberg's Meta, Facebook, you know, they, they, they seem to have control of what America thinks and how it moves forward jointly or otherwise. So uh, Maggie Fox from CNN reported that political conservatives are more likely to believe untrue news reports than liberals are based on a small but Intensive study conducted by communication specialist Kelly Garnett and Robert Bond at Ohio State University. The news is for connecting with one another and learning about each other and the world around us. If legitimate understanding isn't part of your core strategy of delivering news, then you don't have a news company. You have a modern yellow journalism sect. Please stop manipulating your customers. Help America grow. Seriously. I I, I get why Robert Duvall would be frustrated. And Margaret... Swedish-born singer, dancer, actress, began her career in 1961, being called the female Elvis at the time. They eventually did do a duet together, and she won Golden Globes for State Fair, Carnal Knowledge, Tommy, Who Will Love My Children, and A Streetcar Named Desire. Oh, that's hot. She was inducted into the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 1973. Women in Film Crystal Award in 1987 and the recipient with Fort Lauderdale International Film Festival for Lifetime Achievement in 2013. I remember her, in addition to the Newsies, was cartoonized on the Flintstones. Max Casella, son of a newspaper columnist David Deitch, came from a mixed Jewish-Italian but was not raised religious, making his big break with Doogie Doogie Hauser, M.D. MD. He is the best uh, Italian friend. When I'm thinking of my favorite Vinny, it's not my cousin. It is Vinny Del Pino. In 1989, after starting in 1983 with a PBS sketch comedy show don't look now oh really i didn't know about that well this guy is like a really true professional honestly because like he uh a is uh you know he's trying to work when he was doing newsies he would go to the library and like study so he was like Mm -hmm. trying to hit the books and like learn about these kids and like really present a real true representation and i feel like you can feel it in his performance well and that's why like i'm glad he even did the featurette kind of thing for disney back that i saw originally back when the movie came out that made me want to go see the movie because, yeah no he put his heart know, into that film right and that's that's why it's like you know it, it it's hard to completely write off because there's right. some really cool parts to it Cause like I was, a, I was a kid and I was at my cousin's place and I remember them having the Disney channel. We didn't have the Disney channel. Right. Right. And I remember seeing this featurette and I'm going, wow, this is like a historical movie and it's really cool. And there's music in there and like, it looks really awesome and like fight right. them, you know, and he made it, he sold it to me. Like I was on board. From yeah. Then. No, he's, yeah, he's, he's good at that. Definitely. He, it I mean, was his like, first film. Yeah. He was 25 years old. Wow. But because of his dwarfism, 
he was able to play younger roles. However, he really, really unfortunately wanted to work and, and, and I think probably got talked into having medical intervention to change the dwarfism, which is a, is a surgery you can do. I learned about it in Little People, Big World, and I do have a friend who is a dwarf. And unfortunately, it, it hurt his career. Is it because he finds it difficult to move or? I think if you're a certain strider, so there, there's something about you that is eye-catching and they're no longer eye-catching anymore. It's literally just you're hot one minute and not the next. I guess. I don't and know. I really I, like his line delivery. Oh, no. He's brilliant. And I, like I said, I, I wish, just thinking about it, he could have been a pre-Peter Dinklage. But you don't think about that many dwarfs in, in Hollywood. You have Vern Troy. You have, you know, Peter Dinklage. You have Warwick Davis. Uh, also Billy Barty. Jeffrey DeMunn, veteran actor who won two Drama Desk Awards First in 1978 for A Prayer for My Daughter, and again in 2006 for Stuff Happens, along with a Cable Ace Award for Citizen X. He was nominated for a SAG Award with his role in Green Mile and a Craig Noel Award with Death of a Salesman in 2011. Michael Lerner, Romanian-Jewish veteran actor, who was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting in Barton Fink and won LA Film Critics Association Award for Best Supporting Actor for that as well. His favorite actor was the late Edward G. Robinson. Jeremy Jordan, who played Jack Kelly in the Broadway version of Newsies, is a young singer-actor-writer who won a Theater World Award for Bonnie and Clyde in 2012. Oh, okay. But I did see a version of Bonnie and Clyde at the Barnum Theater in Augusta, Michigan. Andrew Keenan Bolger originated the role of Crutchy on Broadway, and he's a native Detroiter and U of M graduate, married to Scott Bixby, a national reporter from the Daily Beast, and they got married on October 13th, 2018. Santa Fe in the in the musical and in the movie it is sung by Jack Kelly he is a white man however if you want to see an amazing performance by an african american woman salome smith gives a phenomenal performance and it's available on youtube check it out it's phenomenal she just hits these notes and it's oh brilliant. sounds sounds terrific thank you so in case you were wondering what the song differences are between the 1992 movie version and the staged musical. Well, besides the 40-year-old men singing them? Yeah, I guess they did sound a, a little bit... Uh... They didn't just sound older. Those were men on the stage. So they start opening with the I Want number. Santa Fe. Yeah, and you know, Santa Fe is like the ballad... I guess showstopper. Yeah, well, I, I was thinking about it, and, and the more I thought about it, Bally High. It is a song that I sung in one of my musical theater classes. Cool. Jack Feldman talked about how he wanted to be Rodgers and Hammerstein when he grew up. Yeah, from uh, South Pacific, I totally get what you're talking about. Like, uh, Bally High. Like, Santa you know, Fe. Yeah, and it's like that little, like, sort of uh, uh, triptych of notes gets mm-hmm. repeated consistently through both versions of the song. Uh, I totally get that. I, I, I can see that there might be some influence there. A new song, one of the new songs that was added specifically for the musical. That's the bottom line. Added specifically because in the original, Pulitzer never sang. 
He was one of the characters oh, yeah, that yeah. never ever sang. They should have given him a song, but it would probably would have been a negative song, right. and then like the Pulitzer Prize people would be upset. It's a fine line between calling someone out and making a musical about him. Of course, they have carry the banner. The world will know. Seize the day. A new song they added for. Aisha DeHaas's character, who played Meta Larkin in the musical. Right, yeah. That's rich. Another song that was added was I, I Never Planned on You. It was very romantic. I got no room for moonlight or sappy poetry. Like, I can see that there's some real interesting and, like, kind of nice and flowy moments that are yeah. definitely uplifted in the stage production that probably should probably... You know, it probably should have another go. But And then another song that I do like that was performed by Kara Lindsay, who was the woman reporter, Catherine Plummer, you know, it was just brilliant. Watch what happens. And it's just the excitement is going to happen. What's going to unfold? Like David and Goliath, Santa Fe, just sung by Jeremy Jordan, King of New York. Then the one song that I love the fact that they added okay. was for Crutchy and sang by Andrew Keenan Bolger. And it's called... Letter from the Refuge. And it's finally like his moment. Because in the movie, he never sang a solo. He never had his one shine. He was just there. Yeah, it was kind of just a joke. Continually perpetuated through the whole thing. So I'm really glad that they gave Crutchy a song. And then there's the reprise of uh, Watch What Happens and Bottom Line. Brooklyn's Here. Performed by Tommy Bracco and the Newsies. Basically, the the part yeah. where Brooklyn... The, yeah, they're in yeah. the protest, and mm-hmm. Brooklyn finally shows up to help out, right? Yeah. Yeah. Another one that's another beautiful song is Something to Believe In by Carol Lindsay and Jeremy Jordan as Catherine Plummer and Jack Kelly, the stars of the show, and it's just beautiful. And then another one they added is Once and For All. That is Newsies, both the original 1992 movie version and the Broadway musical. Yeah, all their music. If you wanted to see both movies, they are available on Disney+. Plus. Yeah, I would definitely check that out if you're interested. Actually, I did want to point out that Apple has put out a musical six-movie box set, and it has a few of the films that we've talked about already, uh, 1776, Annie, um, Oliver is Coming Up, and Rent. All you musical lovers out there, check that out. We wanted to thank, again, Stephen for coming on our last episode of our Halloween. Yeah, Stephen, you were amazing. Thank you again. Toxic Avenger the musical. So Yeah, yeah. We had a lot of fun together, and, uh, you know, it was uh, a really uh, kumbaya moment of fun, musical, horror fun. Make sure you check out his podcast, Every Horror Movie on Netflix. Yeah, most definitely check out his show. He's, he's a great guy. Uh, was mentioned in Variety, which is pretty freaking awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely. pretty dope. So thank you again, and we will be back next time to talk about Oliver. Yeah, it should be uh, a fun time. I'm Kevin. And I'm Chris. Thank you again, folks, and remember... Learn from, from our story. Download our pod and learn the way Not all new sources light the way U.S. can get brighter to not lean so brighter. We can find our way as we face United Fray. And the show starts right 
damn now. Those who have stakes will fight to play. Those, Those who have stakes will fight to play. play. Subscribe to our show and learn the way. Subscribe to the show and learn the way. Facts with some fun folks. Show tunes and crass jokes. Hear us sing and play. And fill your mind and soul today. Talking musical history.